if security isn't real, it's just something you tell yourself, then why wouldn't you want to do something you enjoy? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for this program. Well, for today's show, we're going to revisit one of the career paths we've talked about before that really lends itself to lots of variety. That's the path of the fractional CFO or consultant, if you will. We have Mike Lovelace joining us for the program, and Mike is a highly credentialed professional that started out along typical lines. And then as he gained experience, he decided to focus his path in the area of consulting, moving from project to project over time in order to give himself more flexibility and more variety as well. He currently is a consultant with VACO, which is a project solutions firm, and he has his own entity that he also has worked through over many, many years, Aquilix Consulting. One of the points I think you're going to notice in this interview is that there definitely are some extraordinary benefits to working or consulting on a fractional or project basis. But there also are several things that you need to do in order to set up your life for such a work structure. It can be glamorous work, but it's a lot easier if you take the necessary steps to prepare. Mike hits on many of those throughout this interview. This story is interesting, but you're also going to come away with a little bit of a career education as well. This is really good stuff. If you do enjoy and learn something from this episode, please let us know by either sharing it out on social media or by leaving us a review. I really appreciate it when I see the podcast shared by others online. And if any of our books may interest you as well, we have several available on Amazon or on our books page on our website. Be sure to check those out if maybe you're looking to expand your own career or if you're an employer looking to improve your hiring technique. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started with today's guest. I think you're going to find a lot of value in this episode. Here's Mike Lovelace. Well, hello, Mike. Welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. No problem. No problem. Well, for the audience, we have Mike Lovelace on the show today. Mike is a fractional CFO. And for our audience members that may not be familiar with that particular description or that particular title, basically it means that he fulfills the role of CFO, at least on some level, for many organizations. He doesn't say put full-time for long periods of time. There's a lot of variety in his work. Also, another important aspect of Mike's professional career is that he is a CMA, a CPA, and also holds the CISA certification. So we're going to get into discussing those particular designations and the value of each of those as well later on in this particular episode. It's going to be a very full discussion, lots of value in this one. Well, Mike, before we get into what you do now, it is important that the audience understands how it all developed over time. So let's start at the beginning. What led you to consider accounting as a possible career choice in the first place? Well, I'm embarrassed to tell you this. I had no intentions of staying in accounting. I took an accounting class in high school, which was really just kind of a glorified bookkeeping class, and I enjoyed it. It was intuitive. I was good at it. And so I thought when I got to college, okay, I'll start out as an accounting major, but when I find something more interesting, I'll switch. 
And I look up four years later, and there hadn't been anything that had come along academically that was more interesting. So I graduated with an accounting degree. But the draw for the accounting degree and why nothing else really grabbed my attention during that time was just the idea that coming out of school, I thought I knew I could get a job. And back then, my parents stressed the importance of that, as now I have done with my kids. And so that's how I got started in accounting. Never intended to stay, and it just kind of worked out. There you go. You So many people get into accounting because it really is a stable, dependable career field. And yeah, good times, bad times, you always need an accountant. <laughs> Very much so. Definitely. And the value of it now to me, honestly, and I sound like someone who doesn't really like what I do, but I do enjoy it. The value to me is, the, or the joy is, comes from being able to speak the language of business and understand about a business's financial health. So I get more excited about that in terms of what then that business or organization can do for people and the difference they can make in people's lives, whether it's their customers or their members or their employees. So it's really more of a, a vehicle or a tool. For me, it's not an end to itself. That makes sense. Sure. So how did you get your first job out of college? Was that Grant Thornton or was there something? <laughs> uh, no, that? actually it was not. I had gone through the accounting program at Baylor and they had a very active and helpful career services office or whatever they call it nowadays. And so they brought lots of different firms on campus. And so I actually ended up starting with uh, Ernst & Young in what was then the very first joint recruiting class. I'm sure most of the people listening to this podcast eventually didn't realize that it hadn't always been E&Y, that once upon a time they were two different firms. And so very naively, I thought, hey, this is going to be great. I hadn't really paid as much attention as maybe I should have in my organizational management or organizational behavior classes, the non-accounting stuff that you're supposed to take as a business major. And so I went in very naively and optimistically thinking, this is going to be awesome. And it was obviously a very topsy-turvy time for the folks from both sides, both of the, the legacy firms, and it was a complex culture to navigate for someone like me who was naive or ignorant at the time and coming in. So that's how I got started. Okay. Okay. So obviously you didn't stay there too long. It doesn't sound like. <laughs> no, I didn't. And I knew I was in trouble. The best part for me, the most exciting part, and they were good people. I don't want to kick around their graves. They were good people. But the part of the job that I enjoyed the most was helping and managing or overseeing the physical inventories. And for those folks who have been in public accounting, that's usually kind of the gut work that the staff does because anybody who's been around there a while is able to get out of those. And that's the part that I enjoyed the most. And so I realized pretty quickly that I probably was not going to be audit partner material. And that was just fine. So I batch record episodes. I, I try to do several in a week, and then that way I can do other things other weeks. And it surprises me, but honestly, you're the second person this week that has told me that they actually liked doing the inventory auditing, you know? Wow. <laughs> so yeah. there is hope out there. <laughs> well, back in the day, you never got to wear tennis shoes and blue jeans to work, and you got to do that when you're in the warehouse with the clipboard walking around with the, the teams doing the counts. And so I don't know if I was just ahead of my time being a business casual person or not, but I just really enjoyed being in the dusty, dirty warehouses and manufacturing facilities. Okay. 
yeah, that's why you like operations so much. That makes sense. Yep, very so much. Walk us through the next couple moves because I know you worked at some of the larger firms, and so I sure. think it's important yep. to hear about that experience. Okay. So after my, again, ill-fated initial recruiting class with ENY, I had an interim role doing accounts payable and payroll work for a publicly traded company and then found my way to an awesome mom-and-pop-owned company in San Antonio, Southern Relocation and Storage, that was an agent for Mayflower Movers, the household mover guys. And so I was the controller and senior financial manager there. We were too small to even say the word CFO. But I had a small team of accounting people there and really enjoyed it. And so I had a chance to be an IT guy, the payroll guy, work with the bank on the the lending portfolio and the reporting packages that they needed. In fact, my corporate banker at the time is still a good friend, even after all these years. So anyway, that was an outstanding experience. Uh, Towards the, I won't say the end, but maybe a couple of years into that role, the owner decided he was interested in selling a large part of the company. And so what was a 50 to 55 employee operation to begin with was going to get smaller. And during that time, I had decided I wanted to do more than just be a controller person. And so had started commuting every day for two years to Austin to go to UT for my MBA. And I finished the MBA while still doing the controller work as a part-time role as the business got smaller. And the initial buyer or prospective buyer for the business was a great outfit as well. But I had told the owner that if that deal fell through, then before he shopped it to somebody else, I'd like to be considered and have an opportunity to buy the company. For better and for worse, perhaps, we'll never know, but the deal did go through. And so I never had an opportunity to go ahead and put together an investor team, friends and family money to buy that Mayflower business. So I had been commuting every day for two years to Austin. This was before distance learning, so that was my version of of distance (laughs) learning. And I had the hardest class that was in the business school was a professor who, an adjunct professor who had his own consulting practice. He did international consulting. We would meet one night a week for the three or whatever it was hours instead of two or three times a week like a normal college class. And I came home after meeting this professor and, and told my wife, I said, I don't know exactly how to get into this line of work, but the kinds of stuff he's doing sounds really neat. And so the idea of consulting career at that point kind of sprang forth. Didn't know exactly what shape it was going to take or anything else, but I just liked the idea of of being an on-call specialist for clients, and that was very exciting. So when I graduated from UT, the business, the Mayflower business, had gotten very small, and so I had outgrown it in essence. And at that point... This was right before Y2K, and so businesses were going crazy implementing ERP systems, and there was an enormous Mm. need for people who understood accounting and accounting operations to help with these implementations. And so I accepted a a role at Grant Thornton doing consulting. So it's like you get to Grant Thornton, and it's not audit or tax. It's the fun stuff. It's the consulting, at least fun for me. I was there about two and a half years, fantastic experience, really good people. But then I had an opportunity to go to work for Arthur Anderson. And the irony was, again, I'm not a very 
typical accounting person, but the Baylor Student Center in the business school was the Arthur Anderson Student Center. And so in typical, naive, cocky, 19 or 21-year-old attitude, I told myself, well, I'll never work for Arthur Anderson. I don't want to be like everybody else at Baylor (laughs) who thought, oh, Arthur Anderson's awesome. And so I had just never thought that that's where I would end up. But sure enough, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. It was a fantastic opportunity. And so I moved from Grant Thornton in Houston to Arthur Anderson in Houston and and did consulting for them. And that was a blast. I don't know how much farther you want me to go with this. No, no, that's good. I don't remember the exact years on some of this stuff. Were you there at Anderson when they ended up closing or was that? (laughs) Just before. So that's kind of an interesting story as well. In the Houston office of Anderson, the consulting client, like the premier golden child client that you absolutely wanted to get on back in those days was Enron. For better, and I guess maybe much better for me, I never had an opportunity to do any consulting work for our Enron client. And usually what would happen is people would get a project at Enron and then leave the firm and go to work for the client. And so a lot of former Anderson people were over there at the end. But one of my clients when I was at Arthur Anderson was UT Medical Branch in Galveston. And so I led the team that implemented the Hyperion Enterprise and S-Base applications for them. That was when, and I forget if it was GASB 33 or 34 or whatever number it was that said, thou shalt produce a gap-based financial report, which for governmental entities was a never-before-done activity. And so I was on the team that developed that. And so this billion-dollar enterprise had a gap-based financial statement for the first time in its 100-year history. So I had worked there as a consultant for quite a while, and the CFO approached me and said, hey, why don't you come to work for me, keep doing basically what you're doing, take on some additional responsibilities, and be an employee here. And I thought to myself, honestly, I got into the consulting game thinking that when I found the right client fit, that I would hang up my consulting spurs and go to work for that client. And so talked it over with my wife, felt like it was the right call. And so I did that. And I left Anderson to work for the client for UTMB. And the firm blew up and all the Enron chaos and everything else happened probably three months after I left Anderson. So I like to tell people, I said, well, I'm technically not the reason that Anderson blew up, but coincidentally, shortly after I left, the firm had its problems. <laughs> so you kind of draw your own inferences from that. But uh, I worked at UTMB for for a short time, and what I learned very quickly was there is a big difference from working someplace as a consultant as opposed to working someplace as an employee. And I did not navigate that process very well, and I very quickly realized that I was not cut out to be a governmental employee in healthcare on an island. I think a combination of all of those variables just made the culture fit for me a very poor one. And so it was a great place to be, especially when all of the uncertainty with Arthur Anderson was happening. And so I was so thankful for that. But the opportunity came along for me to hang out my own shingle and do my own consulting. And that's something I actually ended up doing in Houston for about 14 years. It's kind of curious. When I left 
UTMB to do my own consulting. That was a Coolix consulting. I assumed that I would pick up right where I had left off with Arthur Anderson, and that was doing Hyperion implementations and those kinds of things. What I quickly learned was that clients are very happy to buy those types of services from well-known established firms like Arthur Anderson. And if Mike Lovelace happened to be the person leading that effort, then great. But when it's Mike Lovelace, Inc., they don't know you, you haven't been around forever, that becomes a tougher proposition. And so had I known it, I still probably would have made the same decision. But rather than picking up where I left off and doing large, grandiose system implementations and those kinds of things. Instead, Sarbanes-Oxley came around, and so I ended up doing a lot of risk and control work, a lot of business process documentation, identifying gaps or exposure vulnerabilities in the processes from an eventual compliance standpoint. And so it ended up working out just fine, but it wasn't what I anticipated when I started. Did you like that kind of work still? I do like it, and I do a lot of that to this day. In some respects, I miss the large system implementation opportunities. Those are fun. The challenge for me was always that I wasn't someone who desperately wanted to become an expert in a specific software, and depending on the situation, sometimes general implementation skills are useful to a client, and other times they want somebody who's implemented SAP for 25 years or whatever. So the smaller jobs that do the risk and control work, the compliance facilitation, those kinds of business improvement opportunities, I really do like that kind of work. I'm happy to not be an auditor. I'm happy to not live in that realm. But at the same time, I enjoy working next to those people and frequently working on behalf of management, trying to talk the auditor down off the ledge on why this Uh, exception or this finding is not really the catastrophic end of days an excited staff person thinks perhaps it might be. So that's a lot of what I do now. Okay. I just have to ask, how did you get the name Aquilix? Is that... I'm so glad you asked. Yes. So two things that kind of came together. One was that I am an Eagle Scout. Scouting is a big part of my family heritage. My dad is an Eagle Scout. Eventually, our son when he got older, became an Eagle Scout as well. And so I was interested in the Eagle imagery. And so Aquila is the Spanish and I think perhaps the Latin word for Eagle. So I liked that. I liked kind of the spin, turning it into a a nonsense word or meaningless word. Aquilix is just something to make it unique as opposed to a common noun. So that was part of it. Also, a good friend of mine and actually one of the staff people from Anderson who had followed me to to UT Medical Branch is a much more polished biblical scholar than I. And to say that I'm a biblical scholar is probably something to get hit by lightning with. But she is a very biblically aware individual and pointed out to me that in the New Testament, Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers And it was the only time that the husband, I think they're mentioned six times, and three times the husband is mentioned first, and three times the wife is mentioned first. And that kind of resonated with me as my wife and I are very much a partnership of equals, and we're both in it together. 
And so it just kind of resonated. And it, so whether you kind of pull towards the eagle imagery or the husband and wife in it together imagery, that both of those resonated with me. Okay. I hadn't looked it up yet, but I figured it was in a dictionary with some definition I just never heard of. <laughs> you know, so well, I, I didn't being know the good Methodist word. that I am, I was unaware of the biblical novelty or specialness yeah. of the husband and the wife, each being mentioned first at different times. So, Marcy, if you're out there listening, kudos to you for opening my eyes and adding a little depth to my personal faith journey. Yeah. There you go. You've been in the contract world for many years mm-hmm. now, right. 12, 13, something like that. Were there ever any slow times where you had to scramble a little bit to, Absolutely. to make a meet? Okay. That's a bit of a challenge. When you're busy working and the money's coming in, it's great, and you don't want to take time off then because you don't want to pass up the opportunity to deliver more value for your clients and have more billable hours. When it's slow, you've got the time, but you're reluctant to spend the money because you don't know how long it's going to be slow. And so that is certainly a nuance to this business that I have not yet mastered, but it just pays to be financially frugal in the good times. And I suspect there's one or two biblical stories about that. And then putting things up for when there are thin times or famine times out there. So as a result we've led a much more financially disciplined life than some of my friends who had more traditional corporate jobs where they are under the impression that they'll live and have that job till they retire. Sometimes those friends have been right and it's worked out very well for them. And other times business conditions change. You feel like you're a pretty successful person at travel industry related business and then boom, a pandemic comes out of nowhere. And what was a very secure corporate job ends up being something less than that. So yeah, we've led a different life and a different financial lifestyle than a lot of our peers. That's for sure. Okay. Well, you're answering my question because I was, before I even asked it, I was going to ask if there's some secret to making it work. And yeah. (laughs) Well, the secret is having a partner, a wife in my case, who is even more frugal than you and being comfortable driving a car that's paid for rather than having to make a car payment to somebody every month. So it's consistently living beneath your means gives you the financial breathing room to accept a little bit of uncertainty into your cash flow. What I would say, though, is that really what it does is it forces you to embrace the reality that people who have corporate jobs sometimes convince themselves that they're fine, everything's stable, it's great, I can count on this, I'll always get a 3 to 6% raise every year or whatever number that ends up being, and my job will never go away. And what I have learned during my career is that situations happen frequently out of your control that happen to your industry where there is no such thing as true occupational security in that kind of a setting. And so if security isn't real, it's just something you tell yourself, then why wouldn't you want to do something you enjoy, hopefully that makes generally better money than a little bit more stability in a uh, corporate setting? Sure. You should teach a Dave Ramsey class or something, if you haven't already. (laughs) You know, I haven't. I am a big fan of Dave Ramsey, and I have appropriated one of his sayings about, you say, how are you doing? You say, you know, better than I deserve. And I would say much better than I deserve. He's a smart guy. Yes. 
So what do you enjoy the most about the contractor life or what you do now? If you were a cynic, you would say that it's a lot easier to go into a difficult setting or situation knowing that I'm not necessarily going to have to work beside these people for the rest of my working life. And so it makes it a little bit easier, again, if you're a cynic. But I would say that what I draw from that is I love the adrenaline of a project. I love being dropped in. I won't say it's quite like being a Texas Ranger where it's one crisis, one Ranger. It's not really quite like that, but in some ways it's close. I like that a whole lot. I love creating order from chaos. Once chaos is banished and order is established, I would prefer to go find the next installment of chaos somewhere else. So that's generally my philosophy. Do you take some time off between correcting the chaos to let your adrenaline level settle back down before the next one, or are you usually just going project You know, it's tricky, right? Yeah, like we talked about, I mean, you just don't know how long that gap or slow time is going to be. And so, unfortunately, I mean, I suppose if I were very, very disciplined, I would plan for some amount of downtime and I would turn down project opportunities after one had concluded, but not yet. Invariably, that's not the case. Again, because the line from Game of Thrones, winter is coming, you don't really know when you're not going to have that next one. So it's hard to turn down. And when it sounds fun and when it's a mess and the client needs help, it's hard to turn down that kind of an opportunity. Okay. Let's switch gears a little bit. You have three certifications that I'm aware of. Maybe Mm -hmm. there's more. Mm -hmm. Yep. The CMA, CISA, and CPA. I guess at what point in your career did you get each one and how has each one benefited you or how do you feel they benefit you? Okay, sure. Well, I got the CPA first. In fact, that was a large emphasis in the Baylor accounting program as an undergrad was the idea of pursuing that certification. And so honestly, there probably were plenty of companies coming to recruit accounting grads at Baylor who were not public accounting. And again, in my naive, very focused, immature philosophy or mindset, I probably just disregarded them out of hand. So I was unaware of non-public accounting opportunities and recruiting companies and folks coming in on campus. So I pursued the CPA first. I will tell you, my scores were just above passing and I couldn't even tell you what they were. They were low passing grades, and they were not on the first time that I sat through the different parts, with the exception of, I think, BLI passed twice, but you couldn't keep it if that was all you passed. But I eventually did complete that, and I was glad to do that. I don't even remember how I came across the IMA, but somehow or other I did, and it was shortly after I had completed the CPA work or the CPA exam parts, I don't remember exactly if I had finished the work experience or not, but anyway, it was about that time. And so the CMA content at that time just really resonated with me. So the topics on the CMA exam parts were things that I, unlike pure audit or pure tax, I actually really liked and got excited about. And so it was very easy to go through those review material and take that exam or those exams. So CPA was first and then CMA. Fast forward quite a few years after graduate school and 
I had a client who suggested, hey, I'm a CISA, and I think it'd be really good for you to get this designation. It's been good for me. And I thought, at least was old enough and mature enough at that point in my professional life that when the client makes a suggestion like that, (laughs) you should really (laughs) take it. Probably early in my career, I would not have been that mature, but I respected this lady, and so I signed up for it. I did not do a very good job preparing for the material. I'm not a hardcore IT person, and so there were aspects on that exam and in that material that was just stuff I was never going to learn. And I'm happy to work next to people who really get excited about optimizing databases or conducting network penetration tests, but that's just not really my thing. And so the night before the exam for the CISA, I thought, what am I doing? It's going to be a complete waste of my time. I really shouldn't even make the drive in. But I had already paid for it. I was self-employed at the time, so it's not even like I could convince my employer I got sick the night before and I need to, to reschedule it. And so I thought, well, I've paid for it. I should go and just do it and get the experience and see how it goes. And lo and behold, I guess I was a little bit harsh critic of myself. I was able to pass on the very first attempt or sitting. The other thing is, I guess I've learned in the, over the years is that once you get it, you want to absolutely keep it. And so I have been very diligent about maintaining that certification of the three. Actually, earlier in my career when I was at Grant Thornton, I was a new guy. I wasn't making much money. And I think we were about to have our first kid at the time. And so every dollar counted back uh, in those early days. And so they had a bonus that if you passed the APIC, APICS is a manufacturing certification for certified in, I think it's inventory and product management or production management or something like that, PIM, production inventory management. If you pass that, series of tests that they would give you a thousand dollar bonus. And so like a good little student, I was like, okay, this is something I can learn. And I did pass. I did get that certification. And one of the things that I've learned, you move a couple of times, and this was before email became universal and stuff could follow you everywhere very easily. Somehow or rather, I got disconnected with the Apex guys and I let that certification last. And so One of the lessons I guess I would share with the audience is once you've gone to the trouble to pass an exam, even if you think it's not relevant, you absolutely should maintain that credential. And that's something that in hindsight, I'm sure I thought I was busy raising my young family. I was doing something. You know, I was in a setting where maybe it really wasn't of significant value but I should not have let that last. And so that's something that looking back, if I could go back and do something differently, that's probably one of the things I would do differently. Okay. Well, I end every show with the same three questions and we should get to those here pretty quick. One last question before we do. You and I are in the same city and I've seen Mm -hmm. the dramatic progress that you've been able to make with the local IMA chapter. I remembered not too many years ago when a couple dozen people was pretty good for a showing. And before the pandemic time, <laughs> right? I, you multiplied that greatly. And I know people listening to the show, even at the student level in the first few years in their career, a lot of them are involved in some way in an association. So what made the difference for the local IMA chapter? What do you feel that you or the board did well that helped get interest 
going again. Sure. Well, part of it is I think I've got some ideas, and then part of it is I'm not sure which of those things <laughs> that we did were the ones that made the difference. So we just did a lot of things. To kind of set the table for folks, back in 2017, shortly after I had taken on the VP of membership role, and I guess I should kind of connect the dots for people. So my wife and I had raised the kids in Houston, and we'd reached, kids were out of the house, and we reached the point where our parents were getting to the point where they needed help, and so they were in San Antonio, and so we moved back. I didn't have a very well-established network in San Antonio after being gone for about 20 years. And so the IMA was one of those groups that I had plugged into over the years with my CMA certification. And so it was an easy in to go and meet a handful of people. So about the time I arrived, the outgoing membership person, as in a lot of these volunteer organizations, was busy to move on with the next chapter of his life. And so I took on that role didn't really know what I was doing in the beginning. And so what momentum he had built up, I had squandered. And so shortly after I started and didn't really know my role very well yet, we had several meetings in 2017 where there were 11 people at the meeting, which is bad because the venue where we met had a 15-plate requirement or minimum. And so for those 11 people meetings, the officers, and usually we were about the only attendees, but the officers would take turns buying one or two extra plates to try to oh my you know, scramble our way up to that 15-plate minimum. So in the early days, or my early days with the, the chapter, that was the struggle. We did a lot of things. I would say that the biggest thing is just to have a, a dedicated team of volunteers. It's absolutely not a one-person type of undertaking. What I did, and perhaps a little bit differently than other folks, is one of the things that I did in Houston was I was the scoutmaster for our son's Boy Scout troop. And so I applied a lot of the same kinds of things that I had done as a scoutmaster to what we were doing with the chapter. So we would keep track of attendance, not in a, a churchy or classroom kind of way, but just more of, you know, I've noticed that Mark's been to the last three meetings and for whatever reason, he didn't come to this one. What happened? Somebody reach out to Mark wow. and find out. So that kind of thing, and it's you hear, especially with presidential campaign going on right now, you hear about retail politics. Well, this was very much retail membership work. So it was making a lot of one-on-one -on -one connections with 100 or so people. And that's one of the things that drew me to the vice president of membership role as opposed to some of the other important chapter uh, board member roles was because that gave me an opportunity to get to know at least a little bit about a whole lot of people and to understand where were they working, what role were they in, if they had a change in the job situation and they were looking for a new job or if they were looking before there had been a change in the situation. And so all of that kind of information was something that I wanted to have a professional network in town. And this was an easy way to start to meet a whole lot of people that I probably wouldn't otherwise have an opportunity to cross paths with. So keep in mind, mid to late 2017, 11 people at a meeting. Fast forward to June of this year, so about two and a half to three years down the road, in the middle of a pandemic, we had 125 people, maybe it was 128, but in that neighborhood at our June meeting. So dramatic growth. I think the math on that is about a thousand percent, give or take, but just a dramatic turnaround. 
Now, a couple of those people, because it's online, they're from out of our market, and so they won't be coming to an in-person meeting in San Antonio once the pandemic restrictions have lifted. But we'll pick up one or two students in India or one person in the Philippines, one or two people in South America. But my network of folks has grown dramatically, and my involvement with IMA has really expanded my horizon. Now, I won't say that I've successfully monetized that. So if you're hearing this and you're thinking, ooh, all I have to do is join an association and I'll you know, cash bigger checks, it hasn't really translated that way. But my personal and my professional satisfaction has just been immense. And so I've thoroughly enjoyed that and I continue to enjoy that. So the challenge will be for our chapter coming out of the pandemic to return to in-person meetings for those people who are in market and able to drive up to 45 minutes to an hour, whatever it is, in traffic across town. And then for those folks who are interested or affiliated or associated with our chapter who live outside that drivable range to continue to participate in our meetings online remotely. And so the chapter had grown to the point that we were really well positioned once things went into hunker down mode and move to 100% online, honestly, without even missing a beat. I think our first attempt at it in March, we lost a little bit of momentum from the February meeting in person, but after that, it's just been very, very successful. And so that's one of the takeaways from this change in business paradigm for us is that we will continue to do the online offerings for remote people but not for in-town people. We want to go back to the business networking and building those friendships and those connections for the in-town people. And so that'll be a challenge for us whenever we're able to do that. But we've got chapter members now that are in the Valley, out almost to El Paso. I actually have a guy in Arkansas who you know, we've just connected to on LinkedIn, and he's an active participant on those web meetings. Well, he's not hopping in the car and coming down here for a once a month meeting, but he will be able to continue connecting with us online once a month. There you go. Okay. That's definitely just amazing improvement. That's wonderful. It's well, exciting. I do, it's great to be a great group of people. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it is. I do end every show with the same three questions, and we better get to those. First one's usually the easiest. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? <laughs> Oh, my. Well, I haven't cured cancer. I haven't done anything that'll ever really land me on the front page to the good or bad, I guess, on a newspaper. Well, I tell you, there were two things, and one's kind of shallow and silly, but it's consistent with my personality, so I'll share that one, and then I'll give you a little bit more serious one. The shallow one was when I was at Arthur Anderson, the firm took out a full-page, two-page left-right ad in the Wall Street Journal, and they listed every employee by name. So I cut that out. I had to blow up my name like 500% just to be able to read it. But I had that laminated, and over the course of the years, you lose track of some things. I'm sure it's in a box somewhere around here. But honestly, I mean, that was pretty exciting. I figured that would be the only time my name would ever appear in the Wall Street Journal. So that was pretty (laughs) exciting, but shallow. On a more serious note, in terms of what I've been proud of, At one point when I was doing the Aquilics work, and this was in one of those times I described where it's a slower time and you're just not really sure, 
how soon you're going to be really busy again. I actually turned down some potentially lucrative work that just made me feel a little professionally uncomfortable. It wasn't that I didn't think I could do it. It was just without giving too many details. It was some folks that I just felt like I probably should not be associated with. And it wasn't one of those crystal clear moments that all ethics class professors try to beat into your skull where you look at something and you think, oh, well, they're asking me to break the rules. I absolutely can't do that. I'm not a rule breaker. And it wasn't like that. It was just something that I felt like I just didn't really want to be associated with. You know, who knows? It probably would have been fine. It was legal. It was probably ethical or close to it. And the more distance I have from that and the more perspective I have, the happier I am with the decision to say thank you, no thanks. And sure. having the financial wherewithal, and again, it comes to having a very frugal wife who doesn't put a lot of financial pressure on you in that way, but having your personal finances squared away so that you're in a position where you feel like you can say no thanks to something that makes you feel a little squeamish just makes all the difference. The best you can say is it was probably ethical. <laughs> if that's the best you can say, you made the right decision, you know. <laughs> Definitely. And again, I mean, it seems silly at the time. You know, you're thinking, well, you know, can I make this work? And you're like, no, thanks. And so anyway, the more time passes from that, the more I think either I had better angels whispering in my ear telling me, just say no, just say no. But it ends up being the right call, and I did not regret that. Well, second question, tell us about a lesson that you learned the hard way. And obviously, <laughs> tell us what you learned from it. <laughs> Boy, how long do you have? I've learned a lot of things the hard way. Again, here are kind of two things, one a little shallow and then one a little bit more serious. So the shallow one was I was on a project where I pulled an all-nighter at the office to meet a deadline. And so I was proud of that fact, but what I didn't do very well afterwards was I stumbled through that entire rest of the day instead of just going home. So I should have just met the deadline, declared victory, and then clocked out, and I didn't. So today, if something like that were to happen, take the Uber, don't drive yourself, and go home and just be done. But on a more serious note, one of the things I've learned is that when you're on a project and there is need and someone comes to you, normally it's the boss, sometimes it's a client, depending on the setting, and they say, hey, you know, do you think you need some extra help on this? And when I was younger, I was in a situation like that where I turned down those offered resources because I, quote, unquote, knew that I didn't need the help. And turns out I really could have used the help, and I just wasn't smart enough at the time to accept those resources when they were offered to me. So the trick there is when given that opportunity, absolutely accept the help. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you're right. That's something you generally learn the hard way. <laughs> yep. Yep. And again, I thought, hey, I got it covered. I'm good. I don't need any help. And the answer is no. I'm sure, and I don't remember if it was a boss or a client, I'm sure whoever it was, was older and wiser than I and probably walked away shaking his or her head and said, you know, once upon a time, I was that young and naive too. So now whenever that situation occurs, I recognize it. I heart felt I accept with appreciation and gratitude those additional resources, and rarely have I been disappointed when I took on the extra help. Beautiful. Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What's the sure. best piece of advice that you 
have ever received. Okay. Well, again, I wish I could attribute this confidently to the person where I heard it, and I don't. I don't remember where this came from. But once upon a time, I had been told, and maybe it was my dad, one of those things growing up as a teenager that you hear, but it doesn't really go in, and then eventually it finally gets, I don't know, was the idea that you could have many jobs, and in these days and times, you could even have a few careers. But if you do it right, and you put priorities first correctly, you have just one family. I'm not insensitive to situations where I recognize that there are bad situations out there where it needs to be addressed and sometimes dissolved. And I understand that and I'm not naive as much as I used to be. But if you do it right, the one thing that you can take care of despite whatever ups and downs are happening with you professionally is your personal life, your family life. And whether that's your relationship with your spouse or significant other or your kids or your parents, that's the best piece of advice that I've come across over the years. That makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you for spending the time with me and with our audience. You really enjoy what you do, and that comes across. And so that's very refreshing. That's very refreshing. Well, thank you. I love what I do. I love who I do it with and for. And I have an awesome support team at home that makes it easy to want to go out there and seek out adrenaline opportunities. It's a great setup. Thank you very much. No problem. Well, that was my interview with Mike Lovelace. And like I mentioned in the intro, there was a lot of value in this one. First of all, I'm a big believer in certification. So I appreciated that Mike was open to having that conversation as well, because he has three. So I thought he would be a great individual to speak about those. And then secondly, I really appreciated how transparent Mike was about the life of a consultant, because as you could tell, he really enjoys what he does, and he's been doing it for several years, but also he was very open about how he structured his life so that that work structure works out well for him. So he's made choices throughout life that have helped him be able to do the work that he enjoys so much. I really appreciated how open he was about that. I think there's a lot of value in that for all of us, myself included. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with a friend or out there on social media, whatever your preferred method of sharing is. We really appreciate it when we see those shares out there. We've been doing this for four years now, and it has been a fun journey. We appreciate each and every share that we get, though. That never gets old, no matter how long the podcast has been out there. Well, please do join us again next week. We will have another interesting and informative guest for you. And like I always say, we'll see you soon. There's more to come.